0: You're listening to Attention, the Audio Journal for Architecture. This is issue number six, Community is a Practice.
1: As part of this issue of Attention focused on community and architecture, this episode opens in the post-war period. It was a time when city administrators were concerned with the so-called blight eroding the center of many cities. During the 1940s and 50s, federal policies had supported highway construction, incentivized suburbanization, and crafted racist housing policies. As this happened, top-down modernist planning and architecture started to become synonymous with discourses of renewal. Renewal meant federal funds for infrastructure upgrades, parks, and schools, but it also came to mean demolishing the built fabric of neighborhoods that many communities, especially minority communities, called home. Enter the landscape architect Carl Lynn. And with him, a new paradigm for how architects might engage with the people and places left behind by the fever of post-war development. Lynn was a pioneer of the community design movement, and his work in the late 1950s helped change how architects, planners, and landscape architects served urban communities. At Lynn's memorial service in 2005, the architect and environmental justice advocate Carl Anthony spoke about his contributions.
2: You know, you taught me to see But he also taught a whole generation of architects and planners and landscape architects to see, because at that moment, the wrecking ball was destroying everything in North Philadelphia. But Carl made a huge effort to try to reclaim those places and reclaim them in collaboration with community.
1: In another episode, we'll hear again from Anthony, who was Lynn's lifelong friend and also one of his most consistent interlocutors on subjects of race, professional culture and the environment. I chose Lynn as a subject for this episode because he represents a transitional figure who spanned two approaches to community-based practice. When Lynn began working in North Philadelphia in the late 1960s, he felt that the job of the community designer was to improve the material conditions of poor neighborhoods. By the end of a tumultuous decade that included student and civil rights protests and the assassination of both Martin Luther King and John Kennedy, Lynn had changed his perspective and he focused instead on the process of designing with communities. This shift came in part as a result of early experiments like the one described in this episode. Working in Black communities forced Lin to acknowledge that the ideals of community design were complicated by the legacies of racial injustice. While there were many interesting moments in Lynn's career, we're going to focus in this episode on his earliest experiments in community-based design practice. The episode features sections from the documentary Mellon Park, A Neighborhood Builds a Playground, which was made in 1964 for WRCV-TV's concept series. Though the original film and recording reel were lost in a fire, rough audio from a makeshift reproduction captures the drama and the excitement generated by Lynn's work on a new type of community-centered park and playground. The story begins in the late 1950s. Ian McCarg who had just been appointed chair of Penn's landscape architecture program in 1957, met Lynn at the American Society of Landscape Architects conference in 1958. He was impressed by the way Lynn approached design from his background in psychology, and he invited him to speak on campus. The next year, he hired him to join the faculty. Here's Lynn remembering this moment in a recording he made for his self-published media archive, shortly before his death in 2005.
0: I went to a national meeting of the American Society of Landscape Architects and Ian McTarg invited, invited me to join the faculty. Students came all over the world because he had an excellent reputation. So the two of us in 1949 were the only full-time faculty members. Now the students who came to the school already practiced architecture landscape, it was a graduate program. They were caught up in the international Peace Corps spirit. They came to school not only to advance their career, but to find a way how landscape architects can be more effective in vending social service. This corresponded exactly to my own probing at that time.
1: Lynn was a German of Jewish descent. He had grown up on a tree farm, and he helped found an Israeli kibbutz. After that, he studied psychology in Germany and at the New School in New York. He began a second career as a self-made landscape architect. Throughout the 1950s, Lynn based his design practice in New York City, where his commissions were primarily on the homes and the leisure environments of the very wealthy. During this period, Lynn collaborated with a number of iconic modernists. His professional career peaked with the design of the courtyard of Philip Johnson's Four Seasons Restaurant in Mies van der Rohe's Seagram Building. The project created a luxurious background for elite New Yorkers to meet and be seen in the city. Although Lynn never again designed for the wealthy after leaving New York City, projects like the Seagram Courtyard anticipated some of his later work. The project approached the public realm as a theater of social life. Lynn understood how organic elements, especially trees, could help dramatize everyday activities. This idea of theatricality also played a role in Lin's teaching at the University of Pennsylvania, and eventually his designs for neighborhood parks and playgrounds. When Lin arrived in Philadelphia in the fall of 1958, right away he noticed the same racial inequality he had seen in other American cities. He had experienced anti-Semitism firsthand in Germany, and for that reason he empathized with Blacks who faced discrimination and exclusion in Philadelphia. Lynn had always had a preference for hands-on learning, and even in introductory classes he had students designing and building small gardens and walkways on the University of Pennsylvania's campus. This was something no other faculty was engaged with at the time, and his focus on materials earned him the respect and mentorship of his colleague Louis Kahn. Not too long after that, he decided to take the students into the city. Here's Lynn.
0: I took my students into North Philadelphia, occupied primarily by people of colour of low income. We spent a lot of time with parents and settlement houses and church in church and what you to find out that there are no parts or playground in easy proximity to people, especially to mothers who were heads of holders who usually single-parent families, mother being very worried about children playing in front of dangers, traffic.
1: As he mentions, after a few small projects in other areas, Lynn and his students concentrated their energy in a North Philadelphia neighborhood called West Poplar. This area had a reputation for being especially impoverished. It had a notable number of vacant properties in Philadelphia's largest, most neglected public housing complex, the Richard Allen Homes. The population had shifted from the 1930s to the 1950s, from a mix of European immigrants to being primarily the Black descendants of slaves and sharecroppers who had arrived in Philadelphia as part of the Great Migration. Marsha Rose Chestak, a well-known Philadelphia reporter, described West Poplar in the 1964 documentary I mentioned earlier. The
3: deck is stacked against the child trying to grow up in this North Philadelphia neighborhood. Surrounding 12th and Fairmont Streets is an area of transient population, low income, and high crime rate. And slum landlords don't make life any easier. They milk their tenants and neglect the properties until the buildings are ready to collapse.
1: She, like other sophisticated commentators at the time, understood the interconnected problems of urban planning, social services, education, and discrimination, which had entrapped residents in the neighborhood. She also at times used words like blighted to describe the area, demonstrating that she shared some of the prevalent understandings of the value and meaning of these economically depressed areas. Despite this dominant narrative, urban historians, including Lisa Levenstein and Matthew Countryman and others, have documented how a number of Philadelphia's most prolific welfare and labor rights activists lived, worked, and even organized from the area. What's notable about West Poplar for the purposes of this episode is the way a number of groups work to define this neighborhood as a neighborhood, well before Carl Lynn came into the picture. First among these was the Friends Neighborhood Guild. The Guild, as it was called, was a Quaker charitable organization, originally founded to support the health, education, and cultural assimilation of the neighborhood's poor immigrants. As the area's Black population grew exponentially in the 40s and 50s, the organization also began to change. The Guild was part of a tradition of settlement houses that had begun in London in the late 19th century. It then spread to New York and other cities across the country. These were nonprofits that were located in in in-need neighborhoods, and they provided social services and pushed political causes that might better the neighborhood. By the late 1950s, Francis Bosworth was the Guild's first non-Quaker president. He was Jewish like Lynn. During his tenure, neighborhood residents began to challenge the white-led organization's right to determine the direction of a predominantly Black neighborhood. Here's Bosworth speaking to Shestak about why the organization felt a playground or a park might help facilitate community life in West Poplar.
4: We were anxious to have
2: the people of West Poplar take some action on their own behalf to rehabilitate this neighborhood. It was the only part of our area here above Spring Garden for which there was no plan for rehabilitation. And one of the reasons is is the people just seemed apathetic, which we didn't believe was entirely true. And so we looked for a handle, something that would would allow these people to come together for a common aim for their own good.
1: We can hear in his statement, both a strategic and a hopeful approach to the neighborhood's development. We can also hear some of the condescension to which proponents of Black self-determination objected. Here's Lynn being interviewed in the Mellon Park documentary. He discusses how Bosworth initiated the involvement of he and his students in the design of a park for West Poplar. You'll hear children in the background because the interview was conducted at the Mellon Common.
4: We really encountered Mellon Park at the French Neighborhood Guild when Mr. Bosworth came back one evening telling us that he was able to secure this land for the community and wanted to convert it into a playground. He told us that he would want to level the ground so kids would have play facilities. Well, undulating terrain intrigued us, and we asked them whether we could not volunteer our service to the community in order to create facilities not only for children, but for all age levels, for all age groups.
1: As he mentioned here, Lynn's involvement began with a formal idea of an alternative public space in the city. He hoped the design could solve the immediate problem of play space for kids, but also that it would do more. Here are Marsha Rose, Shestack and Lynn describing the playground as a commons. Carlin's idea was not simply to get the kids off the streets,
3: but rather to create an area whose very shape and feeling would provide a healthy and inspiring influence on all who came there, a place which would bring neighbors together
4: a commons over so Boston Commons, a place for young and old, which is so designed that people can be in each other's presence, but not in each other's way.
1: Like the Four Seasons restaurant, the idea was to create a place in the city where people could be in each other's presence, but not in each other's way. The project also explicitly referenced the scale of the neighborhood as opposed to either a generic concept of public space or a city-scale resource like the Boston Commons or Central Park. Lynn imagined the playground and park as an intimate space, on par with the domestic environment. Here is Lynn describing the Mellon Commons as an outdoor apartment.
4: And this requires on part of the designer not to create only an outdoor room, but an outdoor apartment where the grown-ups can sit under the shade of canopy or foliage, in an elevated area, in repose, in peace, seeing the young engaged in play close enough to watch them, but far enough removed that the ball would not interfere with the head of the baby.
1: Lynn was interested in how design could help navigate these types of balanced exchanges, not only between age groups, but also between racial backgrounds and economic classes. The idea was to create a literal common ground that could unite people who shared a geographic region, the neighborhood. In terms of design, it's useful to compare Lin's work to his contemporary, the architect Aldo van Eyck, who built hundreds of playgrounds in post-war Amsterdam. Van Eyck was a visiting faculty at Penn during Lin's tenure, and the archives indicate a shared purpose as well as a professional rivalry between the two designers. Like Lynn, van Eyck saw opportunities in empty spaces in the city. In his case, lots left over by structures demolished during the war. Instead of segregating children's recreation in serene parks outside the city, as many modernists did, van Eyck's playgrounds were unfenced and distributed in almost every neighborhood in Amsterdam. Van Eyck blended his playgrounds into the streetscape in order to create what he felt was a productive ambiguity. It forced children and other members of society to work as a community to negotiate ground rules. Lynn's major critique of Van Eyck lay in the sleek, standardized design of his play structures and his typical use of a single, flat, hard surface. Lynn's designs, on the other hand, provided more variety of spatial conditions and were more customized to the particularity of a neighborhood. On a warm summer evening in 1961, on the park's opening night, a huge crowd gathered. They included neighborhood parents, teenagers, and young children, all crowded tightly around Mellon Common's Marble Amphitheater. They were set to watch documentary footage on the park's construction, along with the French film, The Red Balloon. This film depicted a young boy following a playful balloon through his working-class neighborhood. The juxtaposition was likely not an accident. It was meant to make residents see their own efforts in the park's construction as a validation of a special form of community life. At the amphitheater's base was a large flat stage constructed out of bricks salvaged from crumbling buildings. Over that summer, it became the site of impromptu jazz concerts and plays put on by groups of children trained by a volunteer theater director. In another section of the park, Lynn's collaborator, the contractor Paul Hogan, built play structures from discarded telephone poles and cable reels. Children from the nearby public housing complex which was famous for its stark environment and lack of play spaces, swarmed Hogan's designs, which included climbing structures shaped like horses and elaborate and inventive mechanics for swinging, sliding, and teetering. For children who had grown up playing in the streets, abandoned buildings, and rooftops, these custom structures sparked both excitement and overuse. A low, curving wall became a site for mothers to sit and community elders to rest and talk as small children played in a circular sandbox grassy hills clearly distinguished the park and the city. This created the possibility for occupation beyond just children's play, a place for community to come together in its many faces, a true commons. This formal strategy was intended to foster a strong sense of local ownership. It was necessary for a community to self-identify both culturally and politically. In his media archive, Lynn remembered how this formal idea coalesced into the concept of a neighborhood common.
0: So over a while, we developed a concept of creating neighborhood commons, one lot per block, which would be accessible to people, would become a sitting area, a small neighborhood park, a playground, a community garden. So designed that people could use it in many different ways.
1: Part of the idea was to practice what Lynn called improvisational design. He compared it to jazz and the work of the avant-garde musician John Cage. Cage had pioneered experimental music in the 1950s that played with ideas of sonic indeterminacy and the misuse of traditional instruments. While many modernists like Van Eyck felt simple geometric play spaces created the most potential for free play, for Lynn, to create a space that could be occupied in indeterminate or unpredictable ways meant providing specific cues derived from their immediate urban surroundings. In terms of the idea of misuse, Lynn was committed to using the literal material fabric of the surrounding neighborhood to tell stories about the life of the community. Here is Marsha Rose describing Lynn's penchant for salvaged materials.
3: Carl Lin initiated the idea of using salvage materials, which would be durable and attractive, and which could be acquired without cost. Professor Lin reasoned that there were plenty of materials around if one just looked. Demolition teams usually jumped old bricks and stone steps. The volunteers and workmen from several city departments gathered materials. The old buildings gave up their marble steps reluctantly. But soon they would be put to a brand new use.
1: Reuse was for more than just the economy of building for the poor. Lynn argued that it linked the commons to the history and culture of the neighborhood, to the histories that animated this community's everyday lives. In 1961, Carl Lynn discussed this idea in an unpublished report. Quote, We looked for materials that were part of the lives of the neighbors of this community, so that the spaces being created are already imbued with an air of familiarity. We wanted to show that materials that are engraved with the imprints of use and weather, if put together anew, will emanate a sense of relatedness to the human and physical environment, which one so misses in all constructions that are new. He would repeat similar statements in a series of articles published throughout the 1960s, including a piece entitled Neighborhood Commons that was published in Architecture Design in 1968. These were not just statements against modernist planning and urban renewal, but they were arguments that the physical built environment, defined as something seen and touched, had a direct impact on a person's sense of place in history. Lynn's training in psychology resulted in this deep attention to the psychological and emotional impact of material environments. Beyond the approach to materials, another distinction between Lynn and Van Eyck is useful to consider. While Van Eyck's playgrounds were constructed in a standardized fashion by a municipality, Lynn's were constructed by the community itself through volunteer labor. The process, rather than simply the product, was always important relative to the idea of ownership and community building. Here, local activist, Bernie Smiles suggests that the building of the park helped the community identify with and take ownership of the space.
3: Mrs. This is Bernie Smiles lives a half block from Mellon Park. She was one of the most active residents of the neighborhood. Mrs. Miles felt very strongly about the need for people in the community to do something themselves about their neighborhood, and she was a vital part of the Mellon project from its earliest days. Mrs. Miles, what difference has it made to the community to have the the Mellon play block right here? Well, for one thing, it has uh, taken a lot of the children off the streets They center here and play, even though they do quite a bit of destruction, but they still get a lot of fun out of throwing rocks. Secondly, it has uh, proven to the community that they can build something themselves and say that it's theirs.
1: From Miles, we begin to get the sense that the production and management of the park was just as important as its physical presence. How, then, could a community outsider enlist the help of neighbors? To do this, Lynn had the help of a social worker from the Friends Neighborhood Guild. The West Poplar Civic League, a local service organization of which Bernie Smiles was a secretary, also helped recruit people from the neighborhood. They tried to include teenagers and others with construction skills. They were also helped by some outsiders. A Quakers organization called the American Friends Service Committee provided youth volunteers who were participating in a summer work camp. The intention of all this volunteer labor was to lessen the burden on locals while also centering their role in the process. Here is Lynn discussing how participation in building the park contributed to neighborhood residents having a sense of ownership and belonging.
4: You know, a lot of people who visit me and tell me about trips to Menombox, they always come back with a similar comment. Some kid got hold of him and told him, Mister, we built that, and to take him to the area where something had been done. And I think this is what is significant. People somehow have their sweat and spirit buried right in their block, and it means something to them. There's a sense of home. This is their community home. It means a great deal.
1: Lynn came to refer to this process of collective building as urban barn raising. It was a reference to the American settler tradition and Lynn used the phrase to imply a collective cooperation and resiliency. He was telling his audience, this is no kibbutz or communist collective, but something native and natural to the American context. It was not just about resource provision, but also an act that could help build the community's own capacity. The concept became a central theme in Lynn's work in the decade that followed the Mellon Commons project. It helped translate some of the psychological and communal underpinnings of Lynn's idea for an American audience, but it wasn't without its problems. Here's the architect and environmental justice advocate Carl Anthony in a 2013 interview with me, Anna Goodman. He's discussing his thoughts on some of the deeper and possibly problematic implications of framing expert-led self-help as barn-raising
2: at the University of Pennsylvania. He had a relationship with, I'm trying to remember the name of the guy, who gave him the title of urban barn raising. This was based on earlier experience of the Mennonites and others in, in Pennsylvania that would be doing the barn raising in the rural places. So he adopted this model of urban barn raising as a way to popularize it. But I always thought it was a little strange, although. Now, I understand it now, but I thought it was a little strange that it was basically a Jewish guy who had learned what he did on the kibbutz, trying to teach the children of sharecroppers how to function.
1: When Anthony mentions the children of sharecroppers, he's evoking the story of the Great Migration, which brought black rural migrants to northern cities a generation prior to this story. He's issuing a warning about the danger of ignoring the legacies of structural inequality and the all too recent memories Black men had of failing to achieve personal gain from their labor. Anthony's comments on barn raising reflect growing awareness in the late 1960s and 70s of how white middle-class volunteerism and self-help narratives intersected with questions of race. Urban historians Alyosha Goldstein and Michael Katz, among others, have written about the way that in the 1960s notions of self-help, as in do-it-yourself, bootstrap ideas, came into tension with what it might mean to have Black self-determination. Here's Carl Anthony reflecting on the uncomfortable tension between the community design and the Black power movements.
2: It was a continuing paradox for Carl because even as he was committed to building these commons and these African-American communities in the early days of the civil rights movement, he found himself in a sort of ambiguous position as this black power movement began to emerge and as African-Americans were feeling their own sense of need for identity.
1: Coupled with the neglect of city government, these tensions ultimately led to the destruction of Mellon Commons. Here's Marsha Rose Shestak discussing some of the specific sources of conflict around the park. There was some resentment against the outside volunteers,
3: some resentment against the use of salvaged material here, while playgrounds and other sections of the city were being built with brand new equipment, and many of these hostilities were vented on the park.
1: When she mentioned resentment against outside volunteers, she means the Friends Neighborhood Guild social workers, the work campers, and the young architects and designers who helped build the park. Lynn was neither unaware nor unaffected by these critiques. In 1968, he wrote an article in the journal Landscape Architecture called White Solutions Won't Work in Black Neighborhoods. In it, he warned architects, landscape architects, and planners against invading black neighborhoods with their own ideas. In another article published the same year in Architectural Design, Lynn pointed out the flaw in his approach to reused materials. He recounted how after repurposing an antique granite horse fountain for a park, one resident complained that only after the horses are through with it, then we get it. As Marsha Rose noted, the well-meaning strategy of material reuse sent a message for some residents that Black neighborhoods were second class and not entitled to the same modernization provided to whites. The ambivalent feeling of some neighborhood residents and the city's neglect resulted in city workers demolishing Mellon Commons within a decade of its celebrated construction. Despite this, the pilot project had a significant influence in both design and policy circles. For architects, planners, and landscape architects, it provided a new model for engaging community. It's notable that the project attracted so much attention from students and young professionals that Lynn founded the Neighborhood Renewal Corps. Here's Lynn talking in his media archive about the founding of this new type of professional institution.
0: We became so successful that we had to, had to establish a nonprofit corporation to recruit professional volunteers who, to whom students would then be apprentices.
1: The term Neighborhood Renewal Corps wasn't an accident. It was meant as an alternative to the top-down urban renewal that cities were seeing across the nation. It was also meant to be a model for a different way to practice design. Lynn imagined a community design service that involved volunteer professionals supervising neighborhood residents to make use of existing spaces and materials to address the specific needs of each community. Here's Lynn.
0: Well, I tried to establish a system that would make community design service possible anywhere where people who are trained as professionals would then work with neighborhood residents to build these meeting places.
1: This foreshadowed an explosion of volunteerism and activism by young architects across the country in the decade that followed. But even in 1964, Marsha Rose had a sense of the wider implications and impacts of the experiment.
3: Coraline's volunteer organization and the community leaders were working in the dark. Now they have the Mellon experience behind them. It served as the proving ground for many original ideas. Turning blighted, tax delinquent lands into attractive, useful recreational areas. Enlisting neighborhood volunteers to work with experienced advisors. And using salvage materials to build with. As a result, Carl Lin's organization has started projects in other Philadelphia neighborhoods as well as projects in Harlem and Washington, D.C., which seem to be flourishing. And the city of Philadelphia is building on the Mellon experience, too. Convinced that the Mellon idea is a valid one, the city has set up an active program to reclaim neglected lots for recreational use in neighborhoods all over the city. An organized team of city workers from the Department of Licenses and Inspections scouts locations, gauges the chances for success, and helps neighbors organize and start construction.
1: Beyond the successes Marcia Rose mentioned in Philadelphia, Lynn quickly went on to form neighborhood common nonprofits in Baltimore, Chicago, and New York City. These became precedents for the first community design centers. The most radical of these, including the Architects Renewal Committee of Harlem, tried to completely reorganize how design professionals interfaced with communities. They placed neighborhood advocates rather than designers and planners at the heart of the redevelopment process. These centers tended to be located within neighborhoods and they would cultivate close relationships to existing communities and nonprofits in the area. Which is to say they followed a similar model to the one Lynn had developed, in his white solutions article, Lynn summarized his takeaways from the Mellon experiment this way: Quote, "We learned that you need process institutions that still keep going after the project is built. Neighborhood workshops, for instance, which become permanent institutions." Unquote. Rather than community organizing being meant to build physical infrastructure, building the commons was a way to build community capacity. Carl Anthony felt that Lynn's most important contribution was not to the landscapes of neighborhoods like West Poplar. Most significant, he felt, were the exchanges he facilitated between the goals and practices of social movements and those of design professionals. Here's Anthony.
2: He was not only trying to change the professions of planning and architecture and landscape architecture, he was also trying to change so- social movements he was trying to help us understand how the environment should be an integral part of our social movements. He was trying to create a new repertoire, a new capacity among folks who are organizing for social change.
1: There again, Carl Anthony reflected on how environmental design professionals and their expertise could create cultural change beyond just built products. Carlton's Neighborhood Renewal Corps saw common as a physical space rooted in a neighborhood. The material strategy and pastoral design reinforced the relationship to the neighborhood. In this way, it built upon an earlier era of charitable work that focused on the neighborhood scale. It went against top-down master plan sensibilities, but still made a degree of sense within modernist planning and architecture and within the tradition of progressive or liberal planning. It also centered the continued leadership of design professionals and served as a training ground for young architects. But as Lynn was confronted with the realities of the neighborhoods in which he worked and the pushback of neighborhood residents, he shifted his approach away from the material product and to an idea of collective building through self-help, what we might call commoning. This was a different idea than his original romantic concept of pastoral commons, where the space itself would naturally create community feeling. By the 1970s, when he was working at MIT, Lynn started to talk more about process institutions that were flexible and responsive to the complex dynamics of community need and identity. Here's Lynn talking in 1974 at Ball State University about the importance of process. In this case, he was discussing a series of workshops conducted at the University of Louisville with students, but his approach was similar to the way that he worked in neighborhoods across the country.
4: So what was important is not necessarily the building of a specific environment, but that we were able to structure the planning, design, and building of our surrounding in such a way that students had a chance to get to know one another and develop a sense of community. Not through togetherness, but because people are then linked in pursuit of a common vision, and become functionally interdependent.
1: So, he moved away from the neighborhood unit concept, pioneered by 19th century thinkers, in which the commons was a fixed space with particular physical characteristics. The commons instead became a dynamic flow of material, cultural, and political resources that was, most importantly, built and controlled by the population it served. Lynn is often cited as one of the founders of the community and participatory design movements, which represented a paradigm shift from urban renewal and top-down modernist planning. He and his colleagues valued conservation over demolition and insisted the subjects of planning and architecture had a voice in the projects that affected them. Community designers distinguished themselves from other professional movements that fought against urban renewal. During the 1960s, for instance, Linda and Paul Davidoff developed the concept of advocacy planning, a practice in which planners offered pro bono services as representatives of four communities. Community designers imagined their practice somewhat differently. If advocacy planning imagined that planners would fight highway construction or propose alternative zoning plans, community designers worked on small achievable projects that directly bettered the life of their community clients. They also tried to hire and train locals, especially youth, for professional roles. In the end, only a few successfully transferred power away from the middle and upper-class white architects. And even then, tensions often remained over whether planning and architecture professionals should represent community interest as a whole, or if they should step aside and give community leaders direct access to funds and other resources. Which is to say, Should they play a professional role or a political role? And where exactly did the two ways of acting intersect? The case of Lynn and his neighborhood commons begs the question of what role the design of cities and their neighborhoods play in creating good communities. As a counter tactic to top-down urban renewal, neighborhood renewal shifted the designer's gaze from statistics and plans to the material life of residents. This, in turn, opened new questions about who should improve communities— architects, neighborhood inhabitants, policymakers, planners, or some combination. At stake for both architects and community members was whether these types of social architecture could create sufficient momentum for structural change, or if they were mere window dressing on a deeply unequal landscape. If community design could be only small and incremental, How could it create the scale of change necessary to shift the needle for communities that had so long been disenfranchised? In the next episode of this issue of attention focused on community and architecture, we'll consider how architects sought to amplify their impact by working within institutions, including higher education and state and local governments, to position themselves between the forces of urban renewal and existing and new communities who were working towards alternative urban futures. You've
0: been listening to Attention, the audio journal for architecture. Issue 6, Community is a Practice. Episode 2 of Issue 6 was researched, written, directed, and produced by Anna Goodman. It was edited by Kurt Gambetta and Joseph Bedford, with post-production assistance from Ethan Curtis. Thanks to the Graham Foundation for Advanced Studies in the Fine Arts for their generous support.